We are following breaking news out of Russia where Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, says that his forces have left Ukraine and are headed into Russia. This is an act that senior members of the Russian military intelligence are calling a coup attempt. A weekend of chaos and drama in Russia. Mercenaries declared a mutiny and then called it off in under 24 hours. A direct challenge from Russia's Wagner fighters to Vladimir Putin is showing the cracks in the president's authority. An extraordinary escalation saw mercenaries seize two major Russian cities and they were preparing to march on Moscow before an amnesty deal, which has meant Wagner fighters and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, must move to neighbouring Belarus. Putin has relented, same day called him a traitor, and then gave him amnesty. It's so extraordinary, but I think there's, there's deals that we still don't know about uh, taking place between those two powerful men. This morning, an uneasy quiet in Moscow. The immediate threat gone, but an unpredictable future ahead for Russia and its leader. What just happened? Over one weekend, a series of events in Russia variously described as remarkable, mysterious, confusing and extraordinary, and an outcome that's strange and uncertain. Kia ora, I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, I'm talking to Associate Professor of Russian History at Canterbury University, Dr Evgeny Pavlov, to put all this in context. It's a very bizarre story that is actually symptomatic of the decline of the Putin regime. Let's start with the Wagner Private Military Company. Which is something that is actually illegal by Russian law. Mercenaries uh, is something that uh, the Russian law forbids, and there is criminal punishment uh, for those who engage in those kinds of activities, that isn't being uh, mercenaries. The Wagner Group is entirely uh, it's Putin's creation, and it's uh, it was set up for um, to wage proxy wars of various kinds, and uh, they've been around since at least 2015, perhaps even before that, and uh, they fought in various African conflicts, and uh, most notably, of course, in Syria and now in 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 Ukraine. And Prigozhin uh, has always been associated with the Wagner Group, although he vehemently denied on many occasions being its owner, um, or being in charge of it. But now, of course, uh, all the masks have been uh, cast aside, and he he has uh, yeah, revealed himself. I mean, that 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 was pretty much from the start of the war in 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 Ukraine. So, so explain to me what advantage Putin gets by putting himself at arm's length of these military groups because Wagner's not the only one is it no it's not it's it's the most uh, well it's it's the is the biggest one the strongest one uh, there are there are smaller ones as well um at this moment it is just a very well trained fighting force uh, before of course they were used uh, in order to kind of distance the Russian state from military um, activities in various parts of the world uh, particularly in Syria where they were fighting on Assad's side without being associated with Russia. But um, but in Ukraine, you know, since Putin started having difficulties, um, and this turned out to be not a three or four day affair, um, he is essentially just using all the um, all the fighting help he can get. So how is this group funded? It's 
uh, it's funded by the by the Russian government at this point. Um, it used to be funded by other means. Uh, in well, for example, in Africa, they were funded by uh, those regimes that in Central African Republic they they were particularly active. But at the moment, there is just direct uh, funding from uh, from the Russian state, uh, I would imagine, or maybe conducted through various financial channels. And these are very well trained, hardened soldiers, you know, with heaps of experience, of course, uh, behind them, as you can imagine. But um, but Putin was so desperate for men uh, that he allowed uh, Prigozhin to uh, start recruiting convicts and prisoners uh, for fighting in Ukraine uh, in exchange for um, amnesty uh, as well as money. And that was a quite a successful recruitment campaign. And of course, these poor men were used as uh, just cannon fodder. Uh, they were just sent to the front lines. There was a disproportionate number of casualties among them because their lives were certainly not spared. For, for a time, this was happening. Then then they stopped. Uh, and the Ministry of Defense itself started recruiting prisoners from about a few months ago. So what was the, the trigger that caused Prigozhin to lash out on... Well, Saturday our time. Yeah, so the, I need a bit of background here on uh, Prigozhin's relationship with the Ministry of Defence. Mr Prigozhin, who had very close links for years to President Putin, has apparently gone rogue now, basically uh, accused Sergei Shoigu, the Russian Defence Minister, of being behind the war in Ukraine. He accused the Russian military of targeting his Wagner troops in Ukraine with missiles. Prigozhin has become increasingly vocal in his criticism of Russia's military leadership. The White House says it's monitoring the situation very closely, but is alarmed at potential tension. Until recently, until the start of the war in Ukraine, I had a very low sort of public profile. And, and he's not just associated with the Wagner Group. He's also the man behind the uh, so-called Agency for Internet Research, right, which is otherwise known as the troll factory, you know, the internet bots that... Oh. Um, by various accounts, yes, influenced the outcome of the um, US election in 2016 and even Brexit uh, before that. And that is still very much in operation. And that, that's all, that also belongs to Prigozhin. He's also in charge of that. So he's, he's quite a um, quite a versatile, <laughs> quite a versatile man. Um, and just to give you some de- uh, context on Prigozhin personally, he, he is a criminal. He's a sort of a career criminal. Most of the 1980s, he spent behind bars um, for, he was sentenced to 13 years for robbery and involving a minor in crime, I think. And then he was released on, I think, parole. He didn't serve out the entire time, but I think in 1990, he came out um, and became very um, active, a very active entrepreneur. Um, He's got this um, nickname as Putin's chef, although he just in a very recent interview, he claimed that he he can actually cook. It's not that he is a chef, but he was a restaurateur. He did, you know, opened quite a number of uh, posh restaurants in St. Petersburg, where he's from. Although he started out as a hot dog vendor, uh, but then you know his empire kind of very quickly grew in that sort of criminal business um, uh, atmosphere of the 1990s. And he was very much at home in that, having that kind of background himself, so he knew how to deal with, you know. <laughs> those kinds of people and and that's how he actually met putin because he owned some of the fanciest restaurants in the 1990s um, in st petersburg and uh, putin visited there with various um heads of state um Jacques chirac and uh george w bush and and so on 
His strong relationship with Putin saw him lead the Wagner paramilitary group, which Putin used to fight his secret battles overseas. Wagner became Putin's way of heading off any coup attempts because he now had an army up each sleeve. Until last year, Prigozhin denied that he controlled the group, but the war with Ukraine revealed the extent of his involvement. And Prigozhin was becoming more and more irate with how he was being treated by Russia's official army. So just to go back to the timeline of what was happening, he started issuing uh, all sorts of very bellicose statements uh, directed at the Ministry of Defence. Presumably he wasn't being supplied with enough ammunition. His, his units were suffering casualties, and that's what triggered the the response of Pigozhin. And, and he was actually really, really violent. Uh, there was a very famous video where... Um, uh, I think that was released about maybe a month ago, where Prigozhin speaks. He stands in front of basically a pile of corpses of his um, men who were killed, uh, and basically just shouting obscenities at the Minister Shoigu, Minister of Defense, and uh, General Gerasimov, his chief of staff, demanding more ammunition, saying that you know these men are dying, and there's somebody's you know husbands, somebody's uh, fathers. Um, so basically, he was just getting out of control completely, uh, becoming, you know, this sort of his own his own man, uh, not not being controlled by by Putin anymore. And um, at which point, and that was about a week ago, um, an order was issued by the Ministry of Defense for all the private military personnel to sign a contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense. So was this a way of bringing all the fighters? Under one umbrella, an official umbrella. Uh, under the yes, exactly. Under the official umbrella, exactly, and and that's what triggered it. Yevgeny Prigozhin issued a call for rebellion. The head of the Wagner mercenary group accusing top Russian military commanders of gross mismanagement of the war in Ukraine. Then Prigozhin released video of an alleged Russian airstrike on a Wagner camp in Ukraine, demanding revenge. Russia's defense ministry denied the attack, and soon Russia's top prosecutor announced criminal charges against Prigozhin. It was the last straw for him, and he he claimed that the Ministry of Defense started uh, bombarding his his units, which is probably not true, because there was a video showing some the effects of that bombing. Yeah, he was completely triggered, and uh, and he started his march uh, across the front line, across the border, well, into the Russian Federation proper. So that's um, that's how it was, and he uh, met with no resistance whatsoever, and people in Rostov greeted him with applause. It looked more like a victory parade than a withdrawal. Locals cheered overnight, taking selfies with retreating Wagner fighters and shaking hands with Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man President Putin accused of treason and betrayal just hours earlier. In an address to the nation, vowing those behind the mutiny would pay for this. He was uh, calling it a march for justice. We want justice, and by justice he meant basically uh, the sack, sacking of the Minister of Defense. All these people were saying, well, this, you know, this is a mutiny, and Putin issued um, a statement, right, uh, which was very vacuous. Uh, I mean, it really sounded like it was written by a charge GPT, uh, with, with some absolutely outrageous statements. To many, it was just so much 
theater, really. I, I looked at Prigozhin's official sort of Telegram channel. The emoji, you know, with which you can respond to, to the statements, by far... The emoji that was used the most was one with the clown face. <laughs> so people who spoke Russian and understood him were not taking him seriously. No. But here's the sad part about Russian reaction to the war in Ukraine. Dr Pavlov says most of them take no notice of it. You know, the, the biggest problem, and, and that's really heartbreaking for me, is that the majority of the Russian people don't actually really seem to care <laughs> about what goes on, uh, unless they're personally um, affected by it. Um, unless they have a brother or a son or something it, in the military. It, yeah, unless they are immediately affected by it, then of course they uh, they would be. But people in say in Moscow, for example, you, you wouldn't know you wouldn't know if you went to Moscow now, you wouldn't know that there's a war going on, all apart from maybe the letter Z uh, here and there. Um, mm. Although apparently it's not used as much as it was at the beginning of the war. It's just life goes on, you know, people go out, sit in restaurants, um, Russians really watch this as some kind of um, some kind of theater circus, really, more than any kind of coup. Um, maybe at the beginning it seemed like it was going to be a coup of some sort. What does this all mean for Putin's power base? Putin's authority is weakened. It means that the the six or so different military formations that we know existed in Russia are not well coordinated. Russia is not a unified. Uh, a war-making machine. It is, in fact, a group of military factions. And it, it, in the short run, it means that uh, Putin's credibility is, re- is reduced. This produces an opportunity for Ukraine, if they can find the weak spot, to make that breakthrough that we've all been hoping for. But what is really important here, I think, is it's making Putin look, again, look very weak. Um, because he, again, he did not engage. He did not really appear to be in control throughout all of this. Again, he did not personally negotiate with Prigozhin. Uh, he, yeah, he did issue that statement, but he was also his um, personal aircraft was seen leaving in the direction of his residence in on Lake Valdai, which is sort of halfway between Moscow and St. Petersburg. So he kind of... I mean, a bit, quite a bad look when the Kremlin was threatened, he's taking off. Exactly, exactly. So he disappeared, um, and that didn't uh, go unnoticed. Although, of course, they claim that Putin remained in Moscow, but that's certainly not true. Why would his plane be <laughs> going somewhere else if Putin is staying in Moscow? So, yeah, um, so it's 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 not looking good for him. I, I think I think the elites uh, at this point, and that's what um, many political commentators are saying, it looks like uh, Putin is not in entirely stable. Well, I'm not saying that he's unstable just yet, but uh, but he is certainly not in the same position in which he was um, at the start of the war, um, that's for sure, as far as his elites are concerned, because they're kind of losing patience with him. There have been lots and lots of things happening lately that are making him look uh, weaker and weaker. For example, you know, the, the, most recently, you know, the um, excursion of uh, this so-called volunteer force, whatever it's called, you know, into the Belgorod region, where a, a very small force uh, really did not encounter any resistance and was able to capture villages uh, before they were kick, kicked out. Um, those kinds of things, um, they're not really um, giving people any confidence. Mm. So why did Prigozhin turn back? 
Because he was, I think he probably got what he wanted, which was um, safe passage out of Russia to Belarus. And, and he, I mean, obviously he knew that he couldn't have thought that he would be able to you know, cap- capture the Kremlin with mm. the force of, I don't know, 8,000 men. I mean, he, he claimed there were 25,000, but that's uh, by no means true, I don't think. Uh, probably about 8,000 is, is a good um, estimate of how many there were. Yeah, and Putin refused to talk to him. Prigozhin wanted to talk to him, but uh, by all accounts, Putin uh, did not negotiate with him personally. And, and this is where Lukashenko came uh, Came in handy. It's always ready to oblige. This is the president of Belarus. Uh, Belarus, yes, that's right. And um, yeah, so they negotiated safe passage for Prigozhin into Belarus. But I I mean, I I don't know how safe that is, to be honest, either. Well, I'm thinking back to World War uh, I and the aftermath when Stalin had his rival Trotsky tracked down all the way to Mexico City and assassinated. Now, that may be the fate that Prigozhin is looking forward to now. The official uh, statement from um, uh, Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, was that uh, the case against Prigozhin is closed. And that's the president's word that he is not going to be prosecuted. But, you know, that just yesterday, a commerçant newspaper in in, uh, one of the uh, kind of most respectable news sources in Russia that's operating still said that actually it's not closed. (laughs) This, you know, they they checked and it's not closed. Uh, it's still open. So, um, well, usually Putin doesn't really, um, it's not really particularly forgiving of treason. I, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, if I was Prigozhin, I wouldn't be certain that uh, Putin is going to stick to his word. I mean, what's he going to do now? Is he going to spend his whole life looking over his shoulder and, you know, not drinking the coffee? Or is he he going to be fleeing somewhere else? Well, there are speculations that he might actually go back to Africa uh, where he spent some time. That is possible. It could well be that he could negotiate some sort of a pardon if he returns back to Ukraine and starts fighting there again. But I somehow don't see that happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's anyone's guess. So are we calling this a failed coup? Or is it not that easy, not that simple? I... I... Wouldn't even call it a coup. I don't think it was a coup as such, because Prigozhin just issued a statement saying that he in no way intended to unseat Putin. Two factors played into my decision to turn around. First factor, we wanted to avoid a Russian bloodshed. Second is, we marched in demonstration of a protest, not to overturn the power in the country. That was not the objective of this march. I mean, is he still a patriot, in spite of everything? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't see how we can call him a patriot. Um, he, he's somebody who is just a patriot of himself. I mean, a patriot of his own, his own self-interest, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what he always, um, always has been, and that's what he is. Um, well, he claims he's a patriot. Well, there was this rant that he issued um, just before he started his march about um, the futility of. The war in Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine was not going to attack Russia and why were why did we attack Russia? But now that we've attacked Ukraine, we have to stick to it. We have to carry on uh, with uh, with the war. But what about changes in the in the situation with Ukraine? Does this give Ukraine a lever, you know, some more energy, a, a better position, or has it not changed anything? Well, anything that weakens Putin is good for Ukraine. That's for sure. Um, and and I think this has. Uh, again, perhaps not massively at this stage, but um, but but there are signs. There are signs that things are changing. It would also depend on what's what's going to happen to again to the Wagner Group now. I mean, they they've been sent back. 
uh, of course, and they will carry on fighting. Um, and, and and they were the um, probably among the most capable Russian fighting force, um, really. I mean, they're certainly much more capable than the Ministry of Defense troops because they are soldiers of fortune, right, rather than... <laughs> And it takes a certain kind of person to be that. I, I've seen a couple of videos posted online uh, by Wagner fighters who are actually uh, talking to Prigozhin and saying, well, uh, this is not what you promised us. You know, why are you going to Bel- Belarus, you know, essentially? Uh, what have you What have you done? That's not what, that's not what the deal was, basically. They did want to go to Moscow to, to march on the capital. It now appears to be falling apart. Possibly, I don't know, but again, it's it. All all of it is really, really murky. I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. There's there's there's, there's nothing uh, nothing there that's clear, or crystal clear. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benj, and our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Dr. Evgeny Pavlov. Kakite anu.